interview I know Ali's got a lot to say and I hope you you all guys managed to navigate the social media space and drop on lots of messages wanting to be as interactive as possible and, and obviously it's going to be a, a fairly enthusiastic animated interview and just so that we're catching as many questions as we can because like I say this is going to be a whistle stop tour really through Ali and what he has to say um, if you use the hashtag um, MMA Parliament, we will be able to pick those up as well. Right. Speaking of which, this is the MMA Parliament. And tonight, we'll be interviewing a former Metropolitan Police Officer, Ali Hassan. Welcome, Ali. Glad to uh, join you guys. Fantastic. Now, before we go any further, just to say that even though Twitter Spaces have launched this wonderful platform, this interactive platform, this means by which we can actually have incredible conversations. I just want to say that it's not as stable as they're making out. They're very much in beta mode at the moment. If it crashes, all you have to do is make your way back to Mike Woe TV and I will open this up all over again and we'll pick up where we left off. But just to say it is quite buggy, even though they've said that this is beta um, and they're happy with it, we've found that there are some issues. Now, as I mentioned, Ali is here, Ali Hassan, Ali, um, and it's been quite an interesting journey, actually, putting together tonight's interview together. Now, both myself and David Cameron have drawn the collective ire of the Metropolitan Police. Indeed. Quote, unquote, their, their finest in setting this up. On this time, <laughs> it has been incredibly busy. The title, which asks, is the Met Police institutionally racist? Certainly got their attention. Now, to all intents and purposes, they appear furious just with the interaction I've had, absolutely livid, as they sought to insert their own narrative for a start and derail the conversation. But as I understand it, as I understand it, Ali, you had your own challenges in the run-up to this. Now, what were they? Well, first of all, thank you guys for having me on the on the. Uh... Twitter space is the first time ever for me, obviously. Um, it has been very eventful for us over the last couple of days. I think the reaction and the title um, has probably got everyone into this little room of ours today. But um, yeah, so where, what, where do you want me to start? Where Start off from the beginning or you have a second? Well, at the, ver- at, at the very beginning, I mean, seeing as though we are at the beginning, I'm just interested, I'm intrigued and uh, beguiled by what you said um, in the green room, where you were talking about the phone calls that you had in relation yeah. to this particular event. And what were the kind of uh, interactions that you were having with people who were effectively trying to dissuade you from um, stepping up on the platform? Yeah, so obviously it, it was expected. I mean, my experiences over the last couple of weeks with the Metropolitan Police and, I mean, some of this anonymous accounts that that are on Twitter haven't been the best, obviously, which is which everyone is seeing on Twitter. Um, we've had running battles over the last four weeks, and uh, I've had people calling me over the last couple of days, all good friends of mine that are still serving, all trying to pass on a message basically to dissuade me from even coming on to this discussion. So, uh, again, nothing to worry about for the Met. Any 
serving Met officers that aren't here. There's nothing that's going to be said that, it, that the world doesn't know already. And I think it's a case of people are free to speak. Uh, I'm no longer a police officer. So therefore, I'll be exercising my right to speak. Absolutely, Ali, and that's what we're here for, mate. Say it how you mean it, mate. They try to silence you. <laughs> yeah, that's not going to happen. I mean, listen, I, all I can say is, at the end of the day, when I left the Met, and, I, and this is a genuine feeling, when I left the Met, I was really optimistic as in thinking, right, I've had a bad experience, but I'm going to make the best of it. And right, you know, I'm going to move away and do my anti-knife initiative, which is chapter one, and then still work with the police. And I was really optimistic because, you know, there's some very senior Met officers that I'm still in touch with. And I thought, you know, we, we will work together. But I think my experiences and especially the ITV interview and, and, and the aftermath of that um, was a really bad one. So as you guys know, in the media, obviously, I spent two hours talking to a, a, a journalist, which then gets cut down to like 10, 15 seconds of, of a narrative. Um, so this is a great opportunity for me to get my full story across, actually, to you guys. Which is amazing. And uh, we're going to be bouncing back between myself and my co-host, David Cameron. And um, I just want to kick off by saying I'm intrigued. I, I have to say a, a little bit apprehensive in asking you this question. But I'm going to start off by asking, you know, what actually inspired a route into the Met Police? You and I know that you would have done this against the background of mistrust of the police yeah, and the black yeah. community and people of colour. You know, yeah. the McPherson report detailed institutional racism. Yeah. Now, I've seen by my interactions with the online police officers in the chat, in the mm -hmm. timeline, that they're still keen to assert themselves of course. Force yeah. and not a service. Now, against all of this, look, we know the drill. Why did you take that route? Why did you take that career choice? Okay, so I live in Camden. Uh, I live in a council estate. Uh, I've been part of the Camden community for a very long time now. And my whole reason for joining the Met was this. Right, I'm going to join the Met and make a difference for my community, which really lacked the police presence that we needed in Camden. And, and people wanted to see police officers in the area really out there and helping them. And there's two young boys that got stabbed from the same family. And really, it was just a overwhelming feeling of wanting to be part of something that, you know, uh, a police service that I thought when I was joining it could potentially help my community and I could change it from within. I knew all of the institutional racism. I read up, I read every single word of the McPherson inquiry report and spoke to officers right. before I joined. And, and I was really, I'm, I wasn't someone that just joined. I joined at a time when the Met was looking for people that could speak different languages, right? And I could speak different languages. And so they did a big recruitment drive at that time where a lot of Polish officers came in and a lot of officers with second or third languages came in. Now, high hopes. It all started when I joined. You do the, in my time, we did a CKP, which they've now changed. And CKP, which is the initial sort of learning that you do as a police officer in a classroom sort of uh, uh, surrounding, which I happened to, and again, I have to say this from the off, I had a guy who's well-known on, on Twitter, an ex-sergeant, uh, great man, uh, Graham Ratone. If you follow him at Graham Ratone, he's on Twitter. He's very outspoken, a true gent. He's had my back from day one. He still has my back. And he was my, the guy that was training us and our teacher. So from the start, we had him with all that knowledge, telling us about 
you know, the ups and downs about being a police officer. And the real fact, and he really was on point when, it, when we, we came in, young, impressionable, you know, guys who walked in, we didn't know about policing. But with Graham, he really gave us a sense of what we could expect. It wasn't, it didn't sugarcoat anything for us. It was just very real with us, as well as teaching us the fundamentals of policing. He also taught us about the politics. He also taught us about how people felt about the police and what to expect and real, his true stories that he's experienced as a police officer and the pitfalls of where police officers, you know, sort of can go wrong in their careers and things to watch out for and stuff like that. So uh, Graham Baton was really good to me. You know, that was early on. And then you go off to Hendon. Now, Hendon, uh, they call it Hendon, but it's in, in Collindale. Uh, that's Field where... Centre. The Peel Centre, yeah. So that's where yeah. all officers, after having... I, I did my CKP and then you go to Hendon. Uh, you then have a 13-week course where all officers get their basic sort of training, um, your officer safety training, all the role plays, you know, all your assessments and all your uh, exams, which are... You've got... You do a KRE1, which is a knowledge retention uh, test. Uh, and then there's a second one and a third one. You have to pass them all to get through the 13 weeks as well as pass your officer safety training. So overall, uh, your, your teachers would develop a, a picture of who you are once you go through sort of like the first KRE, what sort of knowledge you've kept and retained. And then you have your officer safety training and all the role plays. So when I joined, we, it was really good because we had at Hendon uh, places for us to go and do hands-on stop and searches and little role plays and, and we get assessed on those things. Although they were very basic, we basically had to pass a very basic sort of stop and search scenario and a basic uh, uh, officer safety that everyone does. And things were very basic handed. So you, you go through that and then it's this mad rush of pushing out a cl I mean, uh, an intake of 500 people. My intake was one of the largest. We had about, I think, 500 plus people that had to be pushed through. It was just like all of our officers uh, rush through onto street duties, which is then once you've done your, you know, your 13 weeks in Hendon, you come out, you get your warrant card, you then go on to your allocated, well, posting, which is your police station. And um, so that's what all officers then leave Hendon and report for duty literally day or a couple of days after they left Hendon. And you do all the role plays again without left Hendon. And this is to any officers that are thinking of joining that are in this group. When you leave Hendon, you have basic training. So when you're then going on to the station I went to, which was Wembley Police Station, I really saw the reality of where I was. And, you know, it was much more intense. You come in and, the, you know, the, the mentors are straight away all over you. They're like, listen, you've gone to Hendon. Whatever you learned in Hendon was the soft sort of stuff. You're going to do proper real role plays with us. And these are officers that are serving out and about in the community. And we will tell you and really put you through your paces sort of thing. Uh, so you do that. You go for your street duties, which is a set sort of like they sign packs. They call them packs. So every officer then has to make like basic. So you, you do your arrests. You do all your stop searches and all of that. And then you get marks. For, you get, it gets marked down on a little pack list that you have to sign off. Um, that's a run through sort of from like from my early beginnings to like going through all the way up to street duties. So then obviously okay. from, from street duties, you, just, it used sorry, to be... Just to jump in yeah. there, one of the things which I kind of picked up with um, the ITV interview, and mm -hmm. it was kind of like the underlying message there, yeah. which was um, 
Yeah, this this guy's a probie. This mm-hmm. guy's yeah, like, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. When did you actually join? And and you know where so, were you previously stationed? So, and how long were you actually in the police service? So did you leave. So this is this is something that you'll probably hear me going on about for the next 15, 20 years, and for as long as it takes for the government and people in charge to reform the Met from like top down. The word probationer to me across England and Wales should just be scrapped completely. It is used as a means of senior sergeants and including uh, detective sergeants and, 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 and uh, all these people with, with ranks they've just acquired through years of experience that feel entitled to bully almost these new starters, people that you, you, you're meant to bring in, you're meant right. to sort of nurture in and you know, the old way of policing was like, you know, the rough and tumble. You bring him in, you're like, mate, you're a probationer. You know, go and get me a cup of tea. This is, this, is, this is a whole new era of policing, and these are new times. So these guys calling prob- someone a probationer, it's almost like mm. a dismissive sort of term. It's, it's, it's used in a dismissive way. It has nothing good for this new officer, as I like to call him, or trainee officer. It has nothing to do with uplifting them it's all about reminding that person and the amount of times people used to come up to me and go you're just a probationer you know oh you've left within your probation you haven't you haven't passed your probation what mm. my colleagues that people and people these are people that work with me and i'm still friends with know that i was i was tough as nails on crime and i was tough as nails as an officer who was from london who's streetwise who grew up on a state who knew the streets better than some of these guys that have been in 20 years yeah so when I say a probationer, I came in with lived experiences of, 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 knowing, of knowing London and knowing the streets and knowing the people and knowing the language that Londoners speak with each other. When I was getting trained, for example, uh, I remember the first role play we did on Stop and Search and the, and, the, and the trainer said, you know, when someone is acting suspicious, you look at him and they'll reach, they'll go into their pockets and they'll look away from you. And I was like, mm. what kind of nonsense is that? You know, I can... Me and another guy, there was another guy, an Asian guy, great officer called Nasser that was with me on, on my training. We looked at each other and we went, no, if you're a Londoner, you look someone in the eyes and I can tell from a mile away if this guy's going to lie to me or he has something on him. I know. Forget the body language and everything else. I know by the time I look him in the face what he's doing and what he's on. So we had this edge already when we joined. So for me to be called a probationer was just something that, you know, it's just, again, it's just, I think they should scrap it. Some people are getting very sensitive about it, but I'm going to continue, you know, saying this and I'm going to continue uh, making it heard. And I think a lot of guys, a lot of new probationers and new officers that messaged me and DM'd me all feel the same. It gets used in a way to suppress young officers, suppress their ideas and keep them down, really. It's like you're nothing. You're just a probationer sort of thing. So, yeah. Fair point. I'm keeping Uh, a very keen eye on the time and sorry to, to cut you, but I'm keen for David Cameron to come in with his questions because I've already rattled off two and we're at quarter past. Yeah. Cool. Two questions. Okay. Yeah. David. I'll, I'll try and be quick, Mike. So Ali, um, it, it sounds like you came into the Met with really good intentions. And I don't think this is a, a story that's dissimilar to many of the black populace or the black British populace in that, whether that's the Met or financial corporations or wherever, right? You go in and you, you go in with a view to effect change. Um, Ali, could you talk to when that, like, how did that journey, how did you get on first and foremost with trying to effect that change? Were you met with 
stumbling blocks, blockers? How did you try and overcome those and, and kind of um, like what were the outcomes like? Yeah, so basically when you come in, again, I, I sort of knew what sort of police service I was coming into and I've heard stories from different people that, you know, come before me. So, and I saw high profile people like Nusrit, you know, Palm Sandu and Leroy talking about what the ins and outs of the Met Police were and, and sort of the fabric of policing. So I made sure that I sort of was aware of what sort of environment I was walking into. So being a, a new officer, you come in, you look, I'm a Londoner, I'm, I'm going to, you know, I'm from the Somali community, I'm going to go and change, I'm going to help my people and, and, you know, make sure that I come up with good new ideas or things that will you know, the public really needs and the community really needs, especially around knife crime and, and not so, the police is always like, it's known for being very heavy handed on, on, on young black men in London. And my approach was a bit more, right, look, a criminal to me is a criminal, right? And we agree as members of the public, a criminal is a criminal. And we want them off our streets and we want them out of our neighborhoods and we don't want them to harm someone. But to target a young man from, from early on, like 13, 14, 15, uh, you know, you have, you have this TSG van that pulls in, they call it the bully van, that throws these kids against the wall, that stops and searches them, and is really rough and, and, and just really traumatizes these young boys. It wasn't something that I was happy with seeing all the time. So then I thought to myself, right, I'm going to see if I can find a way where I, every interaction will leave some sort of good impression on someone. I'm going to go and make sure my initial interaction with someone it's of course, look, 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 if there's intelligence to suggest that there, there is youth dealing somewhere, they're dealing drugs, and we've been sent out, of course, I'm going to be more aware and a lookout for a certain type of group that's been described to me by either CCTV or informants or whatever. But the, the key thing for me here is, is the fact that we then would go out and almost target any black youth that's out there. Forget the description, and you match the description. It's any black youth that's, that's just standing on the streets. So wow. for me, that was just shocking to see. I just couldn't believe how the police were like, right, we're, we are intelligent-led and we, we know by, you know, our past sort of like history and like uh, uh, community knowledge, we know who the baddies are and where they hang out and trust that sort of thing. So then you trust these more experienced police officers to think that they know, but they've just been indoctrinated into this like, very racially biased, racially profiling, educated system anyway. So then they turn out to be going after black boys. And then you then feel like, I feel guilty as a black man to then go after my own, really. When I've just touched, stopped to search the young man based on some sort of intelligence, which was weak anyway to start off with, to then not find anything and see this kid shaking in his boots, having just slapped handcuffs off him and taken his freedom for that kid then to walk off and look back at me with a face that says almost you look at him and it's like why'd you do this to me sort of thing so wow. the more that started happening the more i came across that all these negative like negative searches they call it so that you don't find nothing on these kids you start to doubt yourself and think to yourself right why am i being sent out here it's like a soldier being sent out to a war zone and realizing he fought a war that was unjustified Wow. You know, so it was that deep. And for me, I'm, I, you know, I go back to a council estate where I live. I just couldn't take it anymore. It was just a case of 
how am I going to affect change that's going to change these, this, this sort of, uh, you know, uh, process that the Met has. And for me, it was engaging with young men, talking to them on a level where it was, they knew as soon as I opened my mouth, look, this guy is from where I'm from. And it was a case of having an understanding of it. I'll build the rapport straight away. Now, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you guys. And just like some of these guys are on Twitter and, and bashing all of us and saying, this guy's anti-police. I was a police officer who enforced the law. You know, I joined the police to get rid of bad people, okay? So I've taken knives of young black men, yes. I've taken knives of white young men. And I've taken, you know, anyone who's a criminal that has committed an offense and you've broken the law, you're getting arrested. And it's as simple as that. So there's no leniency for me where I go, I'm, I'm this uh, human rights activist who suddenly become a police officer who then says, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna let people off, no. But it's the, it's, it's the fact that everyone, it's like a blanket, was being thrown over the whole community. Like, everyone is bad. And for me, having grown up in London, not everyone's bad. You know, these kids, 16, 17-year-olds, are wearing, yeah, a black hoodie, uh, a, a black, you know, uh, tracksuit bottom and a, and a little man bag over the side. It's fashion. It's fashion. I wear hoodies and I wear tracksuit bottoms. It doesn't make me a criminal, you know? So for me... When I, when I, every single time I went out, for me, it was uh, having a conversation with someone. If we find something on someone, either uh, a knife, drugs, or whatever, that person will then face the full brunt of the law. So, and I will say this to the person, look, you're, you're being arrested for this offense. You've done it, you've been caught, and that's it. But then it's, it's the way I express myself afterwards. I'm not gonna just make sure I come across as a bully and just be on top of this kid. I tried to empathize with this kid. He's been arrested. That's done. He knows that he's now facing some sort of criminal charges, but I'm not now going to stand over him like a bully, you know? You know? Mm -hmm. So it's a case of, look, you make sure you get yourself a, 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 a proper solicitor. You have rights. Don't say anything. I've had young kids in front of me who, after being arrested and after I've, you know, cautioned them, and you go, you do not have to say anything, but it may harm your defense, they still then talk. They still talk about what's just happened and the fact that they haven't done it all. And I used to always tell them, look, I've just cautioned you. So anything that you say after this point will then be used against you later. Do you understand that? So I need, you need to keep your thoughts to yourself till you see a solicitor. And that was for me to say, look, these are your rights. And I'm telling you, I know for a fact, a lot of Met police officers weren't affording these kids those sort of, uh, uh, that sort of leeway where they were talking to them saying, listen, keep your mouth shut. You know, they would just let him talk and they would take notes in their pocket notebooks and later on say, well, this kid said that his mate had, you know, had this knife for him and la, la, la. So, so for me, it was a case of you have to be fair as police officers. I think mm. we, I, you know, I treat people as human beings. And I know when I go home at night, after all this abuse, after all these people saying to me, I've been a police officer 29 years and I've got all these ranks on my shoulders. What you have to ask yourself is, when you go home at night, yeah, ask yourself what you've done in those 29 years. Yeah? Wow. So for me, I, I, I wouldn't sit there in a job 29 years and be proud to say I've, done, I've been in the job for 29 years when London is in the state it is in now and you've worked in London for 29 years. What have you done? You know, I'm a Londoner. I care about the communities and these people. This is why they look at me and say, oh, it's another black angry man. Look at him. You know, typical. You know, he didn't listen to the rules. That's, that's what I was getting. This, this, this new probationer didn't listen to the rules. It wasn't me not listening to rules. These rules are out, out of date. They needed to be changed. Someone needed to be 
changing these rules. They, we are criminalizing, as the Met, we were criminalizing in the Met, young men, young black men, on possession of cannabis charges and like sending them to prison wholesale. It was like a, a vacuum straight into prison on a little bit of cannabis. After the, sort of the first warning, they, they, you know, they have a bit on them the next time and then they get, you know, they get convictions and they can't work anymore. And so when, when people are being sent to prison on a Misuse of Drugs Act, which is 50 years old, you know, and I'll say this again, I'll repeat it to people that are listening in this room, 50 years old, okay? They've made amendments, but this is what our young men are being penalized with, out of date legislation. Is Ali, just... uh, uh, go on, sorry, Ali. Yeah, sorry, it's shocking. No, 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 sorry. There, there's, a, there's a million on one things there that I want to pull out, but I speak to, so I speak to my own personal experience first. So I grew yeah. up in a predominantly yeah. Caucasian area. And I started driving at 17 before the age of 21. I'd been pulled over at least 50 times. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I understand and echo those sentiments born out of my own first-hand experience. But, mm -hmm. Ali, the question that, a couple of questions that I wanted to ask you. Mm -hmm. Those things that you're talking about, there sounds like there's systemic issues in there. Yeah. And it sounds like a lot of that's education as well. If there was one thing that you were to point your finger at as far as solving some of these issues, and you're wanting to affect change what's the what's the key one two headline things that you would you would kind of attribute those to is it racism again talking to the motion topic is it systemic change is it education of the community like what what are the yeah so two uh, I, I i think we need a, a very balanced view of this and so when we had this very active discussion and people jumped on top of us. What they didn't understand is that you have three intelligent men here who are, you know, intelligent enough to have a, a decent conversation about something. Now, for me, yes, as a community, we can get a bit close to the police and get to know them and say, look, we are very suspicious of you. And as a community, we need to do more. Whereas, you know, we need to get to know ride-alongs and everything else. Yes. Okay. But what I see happening here is, the police themselves have so many internal issues. So I had a discussion with a friend of mine and, we, and I said to him, the Met Police is almost like 100 people sitting on a table that's designed for 50, okay? That's the Met leadership. The Met leadership needs to be reduced. It needs to be more streamlined. There are too many branches, units, and too many, just there's so much politics and there's so many people that all want to have promotion and they all want to have their say and everyone wants to be the man or woman that just, you know, changes the narrative and changes how Londoners perceive the Met. No, the Met needs to look at themselves first. They, like my dad used to tell me, if you are going to say to me, you're going to help people, go and help yourself first. Go and help yourself first and then you'll be able to help people. I think with the Met, there's just too many people. You've got so many units, VSU, VCTF. You've got the TSG. Everyone's doing the same thing, you know? Uh, robbery. You've got the crime squad. You've got all these people that are all similarly all tackling sort of the same problems. So, and then you've got all the different ranks and everyone, you know, and I can tell you that. There is absolutely no love loss between a PC and the commander. I'm telling you, commanders are completely out of touch in London because they don't know what's going on with their PCs. And that's a fact, and I can say that myself, because when I had problems, and there's something here that needs to be said, 
change will only happen if the Met acknowledges that they are institutionally racist in their fabric and that they still have senior officers who were kicking black boys in 1981 in Brixton that are still serving now. And that's the reality. And until they sit there and come out and say, we are when we accept that we have been given that label and we've looked at it and we've and said, you know what, we are racist and we will weed these people out and we will make sure we're tough on this and we will change the narrative until that happens and the admission comes, it will never change. It will never change. No, I'm glad you I'm glad you actually talk about what needs to be done because I find that whenever I hear Cressida Dick speak, it's mm-hmm. almost as though she's too close to the actual yeah. issue yeah. to actually see what's going on. Yeah. Now, I just wondered, you've had close proximity, I mean, on, on, on both sides when you think about it, but can you give me like a few examples just based on your experience? Mm-hmm. We're not talking about anecdotal here. Yeah, yeah, of course. We're talking, you know, lived experience where yeah. institutional racism was at play. So, you know, we can see, we can see the, the lack of support, for example, that you, were, you, you faced and um, any examples of that lack of support. But just yeah. going back to the narrative of, is the Met Police institutionally mm-hmm. racist? Give us a few examples. So examples of that. So the best way to put it is that no one is directly racist in your face and calls you the N-word or anything like back in the day. Okay, that doesn't happen within the Met that I've experienced anyway. So I wouldn't say there's people saying, call your names, anything like that. They might do it in private, which I suspect they do. But I mm. think there's a system that's designed to keep people of color down. Okay, and, I, and I, let me d- break this down and unpack it. The system Excellent. is designed in such a way now where if I'm a young probationer who comes in and says, I have all these ideas, I'm going to pass them on. It, 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 forget me, if, if it's any person of color that comes in that's a bit too energetic and says, I want to affect changes and I think we need to do this and we need to do that and fills in all these applications that they ask you to fill in and passes on to a, 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 a sergeant or someone and then that feeds up to the inspector and then obviously it gets declined. It's a system that's designed to make sure that those ideas are not, they, they, so they, they will never be mine. And so my idea gets declined, but that inspector or people above will then adapt the same idea and use it. And that will then become their promotion tool when they have their boards. And from an acting inspector, they would then sit down and say, what have you achieved sort of thing? They will say, look, I've made these changes and this is my idea. So the, the system is designed in, in such a like almost seamless way where they've now incorporated it where you would see senior Met police officers who are of color, who are Asian black, who end up in court, who end up resigning early, who end up being investigated, who end up leaving the force, who end up on ITV talking about their, you know, how they became superintendent and suddenly they, there was a, a case that came out against them or you know, they, they had a grievance against the Met. Or, so they, there's a ceiling that we can go up to. Once we reach that ceiling and we are a bit too loud for them, mm. like me, you will end up having two DPS investigations and you will have an IOPC investigation and you will get a lot of things that you just make sure that you, that reminds you where you need to be and what your seat is. So for me, the only regret I really have is to, I could have honestly, and I could have sat there and this is the conversation I had with my parents about, I could have sat there 
and kept my mouth shut for my probationary period and said, you know what? I disagree with these people, but once I pass my probation, I'll show them. But then I realized I would, I would sell myself out. It's almost like selling your soul, going, I'll stay a bit longer and accept this sort of behavior of like, you know, this system that's designed to, to, to sort of suppress someone like me and everyone else that joins and, and the community. The system is not just designed for officers of color, it's designed for the community. You know, Stop and Search is one of those main sort of legislation that's come into force that's being used almost as a weapon. It's been weaponized against the community and, and young men. And again, possession of cannabis and all these things are things that are used in to keep people of color down. And for me as a, a, a black police officer, you know, it's not the directness anymore, like the, in the 80s or anything like that. It's more of a subtle, hey, look, we'll, you know, we we'll sort of make sure that, you know, he, he definitely doesn't go anywhere because he just seems like he's just someone that doesn't listen to us. And we don't think that we can control this guy sort of thing. You know, you need to be able to, to be a black or Asian officer who can sit down and sort of listen to instructions, be a good boy sort of thing. And, and then you'll make it 29 years, 30, 30 years and you have a decent career sort of thing. I wasn't that sort of person, unfortunately. So Ali, sounds... you touch on, geez, you touch on so many different points there. Sorry, Mike, if I, do you want to? No, no, no. I... I, I, I was just about to, to say that it sounds more um, covert racism yeah. than overt racism. Yeah. That's what it sounds like. Sorry, I, I interrupted you there, though, David. I, I was going to say, Mike, there's a, there's a million one things that you could, I, I see lots of parallels there between what you're talking about, Ali, and, and, and the corporate space. Mm -hmm. And the first first one that you're touching on is is having to whistle without you suppress your true self yep. with a view to rise up that ladder exactly. and progress. So that's that's a that's a massive issue. And then secondly, if I speak to the institutional institutionally racist point, the litmus test for me has always been. I mean, lots of companies that I've worked for have always they've they've done they've taught chapter and verse about diversity and inclusion, but when you look at the boardroom that tells an absolutely, like, a completely different story. So no, it sounds like you're saying that, I don't know if this is true or false, right, but it sounds like you looked at the senior leadership teams or the senior positions yeah. in your organisation, yeah. and they all looked a certain way, which was, unfortunately, different from you. Yeah, so just, just, um, just sort of, like, sort of emphasise on that point. I just want to point out one thing that a lot of people have misconstrued when I've said, you know, that I find that the is institutionally racist and there's a system in place to sort of keep people of colour down in a certain place. Now, other police forces, I have no qualms with because if you look at other police forces, county uh, uh, police forces and Bedfordshire police, or police force and uh, Thames Valley and, and Sussex and all these, uh, you know, uh, police services, they seem to be getting things right. They seem to have listened to what the public, the government, all these select committees have said. They seem to have got it. And then what the, what the other police forces have done is, right, how do we implement it? And how do we get the community on board? And how do we sort of humanize ourselves and let our officers express themselves? And how do we stop being this robotic machine uh, and sort of show a bit of empathy and care. Thames Valley does it really well with the officers. Really fun way of interacting with their, 
with, with their communities through social media and offices being really relatable. You know, Bedfordshire Police now with Festus as the Police and Crime Commissioner, quite active. Everyone's seen him on Twitter. He does a lot to change the, the perception. What the public wants, the public wants to see a human being behind that badge and uniform. And that's the thing. The Met calling itself the biggest police force and we are the biggest gang that someone told me when I first joined. No, no, no. Not these little gangs in Hackney or like South London. We are the biggest gang, someone said. And I wish I could remember who's told me this, but I laughed it off as in, it's almost like this sort of boasting. You're boasting about being the biggest gang, but you, you can be the biggest. Incredible. No, but you can so, be. So to jump in there, yeah. so to jump in there, Ali, but you know what you just said there is such a powerful thing yeah. because everybody in my community says exactly the same thing about the police. Yeah. They are the biggest gang in the UK and, and for, say, the, yeah. for the for the for the Met Police to actually embody that and to actually embrace that by actually having that as a culture and having that as rhetoric is yeah. absolutely let me, incredible let me tell you anyway, something sorry, yeah let, let me tell you on. something let me tell you something if I had the date time and place because the police officers always love to have exact approximate time of place and dates when they write up the statements I would write up a statement detailing exactly who said that to me when it was said approximately what time it was said and everything. And that's how much I'd, I'd love to back that statement up because that's exactly what they think. And I think if you have that sort of mentality where you think you are the biggest and baddest, you are the, the Met Police. No, you're not. You're not, you're not. you're not nothing because that's how you perceive yourself, but yet you're oppressing an entire city. You know, so th- what other police forces are doing is they, they start, they, they are starting to humanize themselves to to the community and if you look across the other police services they the the, the complaints are down uh, the interaction with the community is up crime is going down they are achieve, achieving higher rates of recruit, recruiting black and ethnic minority officers there are officers from the met who are officers black agents that are leaving to thames valley and sussex and Bedfordshire and all the way up to manchester so they join they, they are leaving the met to join other police forces and you've you've got to ask yourself why is that? Is there something wrong with all the police officers or is it wrong, something wrong with the organisation? And it comes down that at the end of the day, when you look at all these senior members, uh, sorry, ex-police officers who have been, and, and there's, a, there's, there's one specifically in this group chat now that went through a horrendous time when she left the police force, that went, the Met completely discredited her. They tried to uh, tarnish her reputation and she's a woman of colour. And she's a proud Asian woman. And she's a role model to many Asian young girls in her community who who look up to her and said, you know what? Auntie is doing pretty well for herself because she's like this woman that's high up in the Met, that's, you know, flying. She's doing all these things. But yet she had to leave and was almost demonized in public until today she still gets bullied and has trolls and active serving Met police officers after her because they couldn't take the fact that she's come out and said, look, I've gone up to a very high position. I deserve to be, and I, I deserve to be in that position. I work my ass off to be in that position. Yet, this is what they did to me, and this is my story. And this is what they tried to gag. They tried to make sure officers like me of color that leave are silenced pretty quickly. But we are cut from a different cloth. And I say this a lot to people. You will never stop me from talking. And it's, it's, it, I, I don't understand where they see that a police Twitter account can harass me on Twitter and say, oh, well, mate, he's just a probationer that was just not listening to rules. Like, yeah. I care about what you have to say on Twitter. 
because I live in the real world. And, and that's it's the reality of it. It's interesting that you, you raise that point there because one of the things which uh, I just wanted to pick up on what you just said there in terms of um, trying to suppress your personal lived experience was mm-hmm. it kind of like came to me. It was like crystallized in the ITV slot, which, as I say, had a particular narrative mm-hmm. because it made me ask the question, you know, in my, my own mind, which I wanted to ask of you, what was the pivotal moment then that made you think, you know what, I'm out of here? As Because the report yep. made it seem as though, well, look, your former boss mm-hmm. said you had received all the support you needed. Yeah. He oversaw your career. Now I'm yeah. paraphrasing here. And he said that you were not blocked. Mm-hmm. With that support, which he talks about, which I, I reckon was the, the last and over, o- overriding message that I heard from him. If you had all that support that he um, talked about, yeah. why? what was the pivotal moment then that made you think, you know what, I'm gone. Sorry. Yeah, so for me, first of all, I need to clear something up because it's obviously well known now and it started a whole uh, sort of like uh, cascade of issues after that. That conversation, obviously, as you well know in the media, it was an hour and 40 minutes, almost an almost two-hour conversation between me and Rio Chatterjee and we talked about everything. We talked about mm. what I did and what, what the reasons were and what I think that, you know, the Met could change and everything else. And obviously, mm. I, and I, look, I've, I've done and I'm part of now doing a lot of media work and I understand the narrative that needs to come out sometimes, okay? And it's, it was reduced to a small little segment that then goes onto the news. I fully understand it. Right. Those are my words. So I expected everything that I said that's going to be obviously aired. I expected that. Now, Mr. Raj Kohli is a great human being. I have never, ever had a problem with Mr. Raj Kohli up until he came out and said, Ali is a brand, brand new police officer. Brand new, emphasizing, yeah, brand new. Mm-hmm. And the way he said it. Now, Mr. Raj Kohli, I have his personal number. He has my personal number. He could have called me and said these things personally. But what disappointed me was if I was a borough commander, okay, in his position and a young black officer or an Asian officer came out and said, you know what, I've left, they've blocked me, they've done all these things to me. You know, I would have stepped outside of Islington Police Station and said, I would have said, you know what, I've enjoyed working with him. It's a shame that he's leaving and it's a shame that he decided to uh, resign. I wish him all the best and I'll leave it there. But he couldn't stay dignified enough to then go say, oh, Ali's a brand new officer, and, and then go, I have been there for 29 years. And I sat there and I thought to myself, after all this time that you and I have known each other, after all, you know, especially being a person of color and being a well-respected Sikh police officer in your community, and there's problems that you faced, and he's told me about many that he's faced throughout his career, and we've had personal conversations. After all this, you then go on on um, ITV and say Ali's brand brand new instead of being dignified and then sort of throwing me under the bus at the same time. No, it's almost like he came out. He got wheeled out as a brand police officer to speak up against me, and I, wow. and I and I and I felt bad for him. And I think the aftermath of what happened afterwards, and the sort of back and forth on Twitter between a lot of accounts that he instigated, then had a member of the public face so much abuse that I looked at those messages and thought to myself, wow, I can't believe that I posted a tweet up saying, you know, I've just walked out of Islington police station. I've left, you know what, they're lying to the community. The Met police had no interest in, in community engagement, which is fact, it's true. 
next 10, 20 years, next 10, 20 years, someone will sit there like Leroy or uh, like Nusret or Palm Sandu. I will be that person, gray haired, sitting on ITV saying, what did I say 15, 20 years ago? The Met doesn't care about community engagement. It's all nonsense. And and I'm not saying it because I hate the Met or I hate the police or like some have said, Ali hates the, the, the uniform. I love being a police officer. It's an honor to be a police officer. You know, it's a respectable job, but it's, it's, I, I'm supportive of good policing and I'm not supportive of people that are going to bully my community. And so Mr. Raj Kohli did a huge discredit to himself by instigating uh, and encouraging abuse that a member of public received on Twitter and in the way she got abused and the way her mental health got affected and he didn't stop them. And the only person that I can hand on my heart, put up, and I think you guys should follow if you get an opportunity, is a guy called Andy George, and he's the National Black Police Association president, okay? Andy George stuck up for that member of uh, public and, set, mm. and came out publicly and said, this is wrong. You know, I faced the same. And remember, he's the president of the Black, National Black Police Association. And those same accounts were, were, were literally abusing him. So that shows you, and these are serving officers hiding behind anonymous accounts, abusing the president of the National Police, uh, Black Police Association, who came out to defend sorry. the member of the public. So just, just before I hand back to David Cameron, I'm, yeah. I'm intrigued by something you just said there. Yeah. You were very, very clear when you said this, and that is the Metropolitan Police are not interested in community engagement. What do you mean by that? Give me some tangible examples of them not being interested, them not wanting to know. The Met Police, let me give you an example. I'll give you a, a, a fact, a factual example. Brilliant. We, we, we officers, officers on response teams um, or on neighborhoods, occasionally will get an, an, an aid, they call it an aid warning. So you then get placed with officers from across a borough or a neighboring borough in a, in a carrier and you go out on a specific area, you're tasked to do a job, okay? So then you have a sergeant, you have a driver in the carrier, and then you have a, a few PCs that come along, right? And they would fill up that carrier and then you would be sent out to either a patrol area of high crime or whatever. You have a task to do. Now, we were out with a sergeant who's just left the territorial support group and he's just got some sort of promotion, I believe, to come into the borough. And he policed the neighbor, neighboring borough, Camden. Uh, he was the sergeant in my van. This sergeant, as soon as we pulled out of the station, looked at us and said, guys, we better get very active today. And I was, I was, I was thinking to myself, right, you know, I'm all up for getting active today because that's just, you know, this is what I'm here for. Yeah, uh, it's, a, it's, a bit, it's a bit silly to, to tell officers, especially the new officers that are in the back, you know, you need to get active. We are always active because we are just, these new officers are excited and they really want to, you know, get out there and make sure that we leave an impression, right? We get to about King's Cross. There's a black BMW that goes past us, nice and slow, stops in a traf- traffic light in front of us. He asked the driver to go pull up a, a, you know, alongside that car. The, the car had light tints. He looks inside over the driver and says, hold on a sec. Uh, yeah, he's worth a stop, okay? And I looked at that and I thought to myself, okay, so where have you formed your suspicion now? So where have yes, you on formed? So on what basis? Wow. It's a black BMW, light tints. And, and I thought to myself, cool, he's, he's, he's stereotypical. You know, you've got this black BMW, right? So we, we then come out, we let the car go. 
and get up behind it. Now, instead of normally, this is and when police, when the Met says to you, intelligence led policing, you know, when a police vehicle is behind you, ideally, by the time you, they've li red lighted you and they've stopped you, okay, they've either got their laptop out or a tablet to check your number plate, VRM and everything else and corroborate sort of like the suspicion. So I'm going to then look at your VRM, which is a reg plate and say, I'm going to now, I've got a slight suspicion about this car, but I'm going to now check this registration plate to see if there's anything on this registration plate and the, and the, the driver of this car, right? So get that. We didn't do that. We just straight behind him, lights on, got him to pull over, kept pressing him, pulled up alongside him. He gets really aggressive with him, straight sign out of the window. Mate, you, you pull over right now, right? Over the driver. He's leaning over the driver at this point, right? So we go into the St. Pancras, uh, you know, the big Renaissance hotel, big fancy Renaissance, yeah. up, up, yeah. up, up the hill a bit. The van is behind, the, the, the carrier is behind, the BMW parks up, and long and behold, the window goes down and there's this young black man that's in there, okay? We all come out as police officers would, you are backing up, you know, this sergeant that, that's very active has jumped out. We are now gonna make sure that there's no one else in the vehicle, Check, make sure that this guy doesn't jump out on, his, on, on our sergeant, or basically make sure that, you know, it, there's, we protect ourselves and protect the sergeant. Let's run up to this, the driver's side of the car, ask this guy to switch off his engine, taking his car keys out, out of the car pretty much, and ask him to come out of the car. And this guy's like, what have I done? He's like, mate, come out of the car, um, I need to have a word with you. Your manner of driving wasn't good. Okay, fine. What? I'm thinking, right, your manner of driving was good. He's the sergeant. We are just going to just see how this plays out, right? I then go to the other side of the car. We are then looking into the car to see if there's anything that, you know, can corroborate this, this suspicion sort of thing. There's no weapons that are visible. Again, you are risk assessing as officers, okay? You're, you're making sure there's not, no one in the, hidden in the back crouched down or there's weapons accessible to this driver because we it's an unknown risk i don't know who this person is this driver comes out car gets secured it's off this kid gets told to come to the to the side of the road and then um the questioning begins of like where have you been what you're doing like what have you done and then obviously he says i have a joint in my car i haven't smoked it yet it's rolled up but i was planning to go to my girlfriend's house and smoke it okay if you want mm. and if it's a big deal i'll throw it away now and let's just leave it at that. I've never had any, I haven't got a criminal past and I do not want to get criminalized. I, and, you know, I don't want nothing to happen to me. He says, hold on a sec. So you're telling me you've got cannabis in your car. Right, guess what, mate? Handcuffs on, bang. He slaps the handcuffs on, right? Then tells us to search him. So it's his handcuffs that have come with his belt. He's handcuffed him to then tell us, go, right, you guys search him. Section 23, we're looking for drugs. He's just admitted that he has drugs on him. We're now going to turn over this car, right? All doors open up, boot opens up. Everything is a full-on search on this guy now. This guy is panicking, thinking, you know, I've, I've just told you, I've been honest. I haven't smoked anything. I haven't done anything criminal. Please, like, sort of, he's pleading with us. And I'm like, listen, mate, you need to calm down, relax, and then hopefully we'll sort something out. But again, I can't go ahead of this sergeant. This sergeant is now leading, and he's more superior to me, obviously. Now, this story, to cut it short and not make it too long-winded, he asked, he doesn't find anything in the car, comes up to this youth and says, you know what? There's nothing in your car. Search is negative. Guess what? I'm going to call the traffic unit now to breathalyze you 
for, to make sure that you haven't been smoking drugs and driving your car, which he has every right to do. But then again, this is pushing it now. This is pushing it because now he's looking for things, right? And this kid's yeah. getting more agitated, more agitated, and he's telling the kid, calm down. You need to calm down, okay? What are you hiding? Why are you being, why are you being evasive? The kid's like, listen, I'm, I'm nervous because, you know, I'm going to my girlfriend. I haven't done anything. So then we wait for a traffic unit. Michael, the traffic unit came four hours after we stopped him. What? In the blistering cold, this kid is shaking in his boots. I'm freezing to the point that we had to take turns to shelter inside the van to, get, to, to have our fingers yeah, reheated, basically. That our bodies just to feel like we could move around. That's how cold what the temperature was. This, this kid is what still outside. He's outside. So he then, Joking. the traffic unit turns up. Sergeant runs over to them. This traffic unit says, right, obviously, two white guys turn up. The sergeant is a third white guy. Come up, look at each other, have a little chat in the distance. They come up to him. It's this whole attitude. You can tell by their faces. Like, mate, come on, tell us the truth. Have you been um, smoking? It's fine if you've been smoking. You can just tell us. Now, I'm looking at that thinking to myself, this is almost like you're about to incriminate someone. You're, you're kind of encouraging. You're looking for something here. So then anyway, he gets breathalyzed, happens. We then wait for a test, which is super slow anyway. We wait for the test. Test comes back negative. Poor kid, 17, 18 years old, gets that frozen. Yeah, he gets the handcuffs come off. He looks at him. Sergeant comes over and says, here's your license, mate. Second time lucky, I hope, he says to him. And then this kid just walks off to the point that he was literally waddling off as he's going to his car because that's how cold he was. Unlike us, he's been out in his cold. So I'm looking, I got back into the van thinking, how did we justify this? How did we justify this? And these are, and, and remember, this is just one of many. You know, that's just a stop. I walked into a canteen once where, you know, you had a, uh, a territorial support group, which is the bully van that you see in London, the dark yeah. navy van, sat there having their sandwiches. I'm walking in there with my casual clothing, having just tapped into the building. I'm going to my lockers. I happen to walk past them. And this group of men, one woman in there, stopped mid-sandwich like I pressed pause on a remote control. I kid you not. They stopped and looked. Their heads weren't even moving. It was their eyes that were moving. They were like, who let this prisoner out sort of thing, you know? And they didn't say a word. They were frozen in time. And I sat there and I stopped and I looked at them and I was like, are you guys all right? And they just, just sat there in silence, no replies, no responses, nothing. As if to say, should he be in handcuffs? Or it's almost like they've been programmed in this like, you know, uh-oh, he's a threat. Like, who is he? This is the mentality Unreal. they've been programmed. It's, it's, like, it's like a robot doesn't know better, right? And this is why just the, the, the just world, to, yeah. So just, just to jump in, just before we run out of time, yeah. we, we have got through half of this conversation <laughs> and it looks like we're going to have to have you back because yeah. really and truly, there's so much more I wanted to ask. Oh God. We are literally, we are literally five minutes before the end and I wanted to bring some people up in terms of questions asked, but I wanted to make sure that my man David Cameron has his last question uh fired off before we uh we get out of here but this has been incredible you are definitely coming back Cameron. Yeah, it's been a it's been a brilliant chat i really appreciate the time ali i think the last one from me and again this might roll over to part two because it's it's a fairly lengthy one um i was just gonna say I, i'm keen i mean i've got a young son now Mm -hmm. um, and I'm just keen to understand. I know you've got uh, the charity group up, Chapter One, there, Ali. Mm -hmm. What can we do? 
how, how can we work? What 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 can we do as a as a community? Yeah. So to kind of solve some of these problems to make sure that the next generation don't bear the burden yeah. of of, okay. of what's going on. And so what, that's that, uh, that's a really good question, Cameron, and I appreciate the fact that you've asked me. If you look at generally what your son is faced with, and I'll give you some stats. So the Home Office figures, right, from 2020. 76% of all stop and searches conducted by the men, right, came back. 76% came back as no further action, right? So your son, being a, 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 a black boy, is yeah. nine times more likely to be stopped and searched. So his odds are already much higher. So if you look at 76% of Londoners being handcuffed, okay, without having not, done nothing, they've had their freedoms taken away. The only thing I can tell you, and my advice is to, and I'm working with teachers and, I'm, and I've got a whole program that, I've, that I'm, I'm about to roll out hopefully over the next couple of months, especially through schools, is a thing called know your rights. The police know their laws. All these new police officers that you see on the street have just come out a fast-tracked, very fast-tracked process. They have been taught at a very fast pace, section one of PACE, section 23 of, of um, Misuse of Drugs Act. And if an area has violence, a section 60, which authorizes basically the search of anyone in that area, right? So they've been programmed to run with those three sort of legislations. Outside of those three legislations, they are very limited in their knowledge, okay? So police officers now need to be challenged much more. And our communities, and this is what I'm about to roll out, and I'm working with local conservative uh, councils in Camden, and I'm working with Camden Council to try to get this out to parents. And I ha I'm having a, a, a lunch, sort of lunch date with a bunch of mums in Islington about this. It's about knowing your rights. When a police officer stops your son, for example, he needs to know to remain calm. He needs to know what section one of PACE is. He needs to know what section 23 is of Misuse of Drugs Act. He needs to know that these officers can't just jump on top of him and say, mate, stand there for me, wait there for me, get your hands out of your pockets, do this for me and do that. No, you need to tell me who you are. You know, they have a thing called Go Wisely, which I will go into a bit more in depth into uh, part two of our conversation. And I will expand on what your rights are. But Section 1, Section 23 of the Misuse of Drugs Act is heavily used for all the stop and searches. So Section 23 is used for drugs, right? It's heavily used by officers. It's almost verbatim. They'll read out what they've been taught. Again, you can challenge it. Again, if you're very aware of the Go Wisely process, officer needs to make himself aware. And I'll go into that this, uh, in, in part two. Your son needs to remain calm. He needs to know the legislation that these police officers are working with. He needs to look at the body-worn camera being on. He needs to take note of the shoulder numbers. He needs to empower himself. We need to empower ourselves as a community to stand up for ourselves and not be, you know, uh, uh, a friend of mine said this. We as a black community are far less likely to complain about a bad stop than our white counterparts are. Strange, right? A, a, a young uh, white boy got stopped in Islington. His dad would, he wrote, an entire nine-page complaint came to the police station seven days a week to complain. Uh, you know, some, some people in our communities don't do that. So we need to educate ourselves properly. We need to stand up for ourselves. The police are not superhuman. They don't come into the communities and just turn us over, get into our pockets, okay?
We need to know our rights. These are human beings that we're dealing with and we need to treat them with empathy and respect. I'm a human being. I'm a member of public now. I would never, till this day, ever disrespect someone that I don't know on the street. So how does this officer come out of the police station and disrespect a young man? A young man's going to stand up for himself because that's what young boys are programmed to do. He wants to show his friends that he's, he's someone. And you can't just bully people into submission. And um, I'll go into this a bit further, but yeah, I think it, know your rights, know your rights. I'm going to pound that into a lot of people's heads because okay. I, think th I think police are uh, just doing things far out of their uh, policing powers. Ali, I, I just had a feeling that this would be basically where it would be. And that is, we're still mid-conversation and the yeah. hour is up. But thank you so much for sharing your experience with us. We are definitely doing a part two of this. Excellent. And um, maybe this time, we'll, or maybe next time around, we'll get the media involved. We'll get a little bit of, yeah, um, so, little bit of so, traction on this. Yeah, so I'll give you a... It seems. Yeah, so I have spoken to a few media outlets and they are aware of what we've done and they are aware that we will be doing a part two. And from my, from my understanding, Michael... And I don't know who or which one there are. Apparently, there are three members, researchers for ITV and BBC in this group chat. I don't know who they are. Well, <laughs> uh, so it's interesting. That's what I've been told anyway. You um, can hit yeah. myself up if you're following me, um, and that is any of the media members. You can hit David Cameron up or you can hit Ali up. We are very interested in talking to you and making this um, a bigger occasion the next time round we do it, which will be in the coming weeks, because this is a discussion which we feel that needs traction, which feels um, more comfortable talking with the community about, but more importantly, hearing firsthand from an ex-Met police officer what it's like actually living in a met police which is institutionally racist so on that note we're going to close this space but thank you so much ali we're going to do this michael, again, as i mentioned absolutely michael can i just say one last thing before we leave just to sort Take of it away. uh uh wet the appetite for our next conversation all i'll say is this if the met really wants to recruit black and asian officers and ethnic minority officers i want those officers to look at us as the people before them who, and what we've experienced. I want them to take a long, hard look at what we've experienced before them. So to say that you want us, our parents and our aunts and family to give up their sons and daughters to join the Met, when, when people of color have been treated this, this way and the community still continue to be treated this way, this is something I'll probably expand on in our next episode. We'll talk about recruitment and uh, what has been done around there. Amazing. I want to take this opportunity also to Thank my incredible co-host, David Cameron. We'll be back in a few weeks' time for part two of the MMA Parliament. Until then, thank yourselves. Thanks for having me. Oh, oh. Oh.